All right, Luke chapter 6. We are journeying through the gospel of Luke. Um, and <clears throat> we're kind of coming to the close of a, a series of about seven stories where Jesus is enacting what he what he preached uh, back in chapter 4 where he went to the synagogue on a Sabbath and he opened the scroll to Isaiah, it was given to him, and he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed, and to declare the year of the Lord's favor. And everything that Luke's kind of gathered together here in this uh, series of seven stories, and we kind of get two today, have been showing us how Jesus is doing that. And the, the amazing popularity that comes out of that, but also the growing opposition that comes because of what he is doing, because he's doing a new thing. And last week we looked at that, that, that uh, Jesus said, you, can't, you, you, you don't take a new pair of jeans and cut them up just to patch the old pair of jeans. And you don't take new wine and put it in a wineskin you've already used, otherwise they'll be ruined. And if you just like the same old, same old, it's not going to work in my kingdom. I'm doing a new thing and you need to embrace that. And now Jesus is going to do two things on two different Sabbath days. One, he's going to provide for his disciples or allow them to provide uh, for themselves uh, and it gets on some people's nerves that he allows this, and then we're going to see a, uh, a situation where he heals somebody and brings them to wholeness. Now, we, uh, back, in, uh, back in February, we took a number of weeks, and we looked at this practice of Sabbath, and so um, we'll want to remember some things about that, uh, but I won't go into that too much today. Uh, this is more descriptive of how Jesus started redefining Sabbath. So let's stand together as we read this, uh, these two episodes, chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and he gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come, stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking round at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and the hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Have a seat. (coughs) 
So before we kind of look at this, there's a few things I thought we need to kind of explore just a little bit and give some definition to. Uh, because if you're relatively new to the Bible, or even if you, you know, have been reading the Bible for a long, long time, often we kind of just have a, 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 we think of the Pharisees as kind of a monocolor group. Uh, we kind of assume some things about Sabbath, um, but these are not kind of words or, or gr- groups of people that we're really familiar with. And we don't necessarily know their history too much or what they, what they stood for other than what we read in the Gospels. And so we get a, maybe a very one-dimensional uh, picture of who they are. Uh, so, so just a few gaps to kind of fill some things in as we uh, come to this text. First, the Pharisees. Uh, who are these guys? All, you know, it's kind of become a cultural thing that if you're a Pharisee, then you're just a legalistic jerk, right? That's kind of the, the whitewash that we put on these guys. Well, the Pharisees emerged probably just after, uh, or at least the seeds of Phariseeism. We don't really have them as a distinct group until a couple hundred years before Jesus at the earliest. But the seeds are kind of there in the story of Ezra. Uh, as, they, as Israel comes back from captivity in Babylon, they come back to Jerusalem, and there's Samaritans in the area, there's the people of the land who were, you know, when the, the Babylonian exile really only affected the ruling class and the upper class of Israel, they left all the farmers behind. They just took all the government officials off to Babylon. Uh, and so it basically was, a you know, everybody just lived and did their thing. And then the ruling class comes back from Babylon, so you've got priests and and Levites and all these groups, they come back. And the big question is, okay, who really is Jewish? And what defines us? What, what, What defines who's in and who's out? And there's all sorts of tensions going on around this because you had the Samaritan group, which is, which is kind of an, uh, you know, there's Jewish and then there's this other group of people and they intermarried and had kids and they end up being called Samaritans because they come from Samaria, an area around there. And then you've got this people of the land and, you know, they don't really know much about the law or purity or Sabbath or anything really. They don't know their Bibles all that well. <clears throat> and so Ezra comes back and he's like, oh my goodness, we don't even know who's who or anything, and so they, they start teaching and applying the scripture and saying, here's what we have to do to get back to being the pure people of God. Now this continues on. Now you gotta remember that even as Ezra comes back and even as the, the uh, exile is over, they're still under foreign rule. So Israel isn't a nation at all. They're, they're kind of a they're group of people who are ruled still by Babylon, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans, and on and on it goes. And you've got centuries of, of the Jewish people being ruled by pagan oppressors. And so the, the question of purity and keeping their identity is so critical. And in 168 BC, there was what's called the Maccabean Revolt in the, the uh, uh, Hasmonean dynasty, a uh, Jewish group. Uh, what happened is... is uh, the, the Greek uh, rulers were trying to enforce Greek culture across the Mediterranean, and this, of course, includes Israel. <clears throat> and they go to, uh, they go to this uh, one family, uh, this one town, and they say, hey, you need to offer sacrifices to our gods, and you need to slaughter this pig in order to do it. Well, 
Mr. Maccabee said, not going to do it, and he pulled out a sword and started killing all of the Greek guys, and that started a whole revolt. And then the Greeks and the, and the Jews are fighting, and there's war going on. And uh, a few years later, the temple is taken over again, and there's a, a pig slaughtered. Antiochus Epiphanes does this on the 25th of December, 167, uh, I believe. And he slaughters a pig on the altar and desecrates the temple, kills all the priests. Well, the Maccabees are still fighting uh, for the purity of Israel. A year later, they conquer and drive out the Greeks from Jerusalem, rededicate the temple, install their own priest. And on the 25th of December, 167, or 166, they have a big party called Hanukkah, the festival of lights, Christmas. <laughs> you know, kind of, uh, it, it covers that day. A zeal for righteousness and the law. A purity of life where the Torah, the five books of Moses, is central and it guides their life. Out of this era, we start to see different groups and factions as to how to deal with this. There's the zealots who are zealous for the law, for righteousness, and if necessary, actually they believe it's absolutely necessary, we need to drive them out with the sword. Now, the zealots are a military terrorist group that just attacks and kills foreigners and fellow Jews who they don't think measure up to biblical standards, just cut them off. And so you got, we're gonna see next week, you got a zealot in Jesus mix with Matthew the tax collector. That's a whole other story, we'll get to that. Purity of life and the centrality of Torah. So you got the, you got the, the zealots who are kind of this military arm. You've got the Pharisees who don't really embrace the, the, uh, the, the military uprising. They just want people to stay pure within their culture, within their time, and they're kind of spread out all over in all different towns, uh, mostly attached to the synagogue. Most of them aren't like professional they, uh, pastors or teachers or anything. They're teachers, but they've also got jobs, and, and they're lay leaders in their local synagogue, and they're helping people try to live out what the Word of God says in everyday life. That's kind of the Pharisees. When we think about them that way, we start to see, oh, maybe like we can understand a bit of the tensions. One, they want purity. They want clarity from the scriptures. They, they, they want purity of action in people's lives. This is the Pharisees. Sadducees is another group that emerges too, but they're mainly based in Jerusalem and they are much more uh, open to working politically with the oppressive governments that they're working under. And so you've got all these different groups, and there's a few others too. There's a whole group that just said, forget it, we're out, we're going to the hills, we're going to hide in caves and copy out scripture and lead monastic life. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls thanks to that group. And they just were going to wait until the Messiah came and sorted it all out, but we're just going to hide away until God does something about the mess that the world is in. We can make all parallels with, you know, different ways that people today respond to government and oppression and stuff like that. But this is kind of the picture of what's going on. Jewish leaders were not all unified as to how to deal with what, what they were living with. But their central focus was we want to be, 
We wanna be following the word of God as best we can in the situation we're in so we don't lose our identity as the people of God. And that's also why the Sabbath is a critical flashpoint for them with Jesus because Sabbath became an absolute hallmark of Jewish identity. This weekly cessation from all work and this day of rest was so countercultural ever since its beginning, really, ever since they came out of Egypt and God gave this, this, this command. Remember the Sabbath, they keep it holy. Everybody take a day off, even your animals, the, the, the people that work for you, everybody gets a day off because remember, you were slaves in Egypt. And so practice this, make this define you. This weekly rhythm is gonna define who you are as my people. Even today, to take a whole day off and just to just relax, sometimes that's a little countercultural. We still think we need to be busy on our days off and doing stuff and being productive, whether it's at home or in a hobby or whatever. But Jesus stirs up conflict and controversy over the Sabbath because there were many, many extra rules because they said, well, how do we keep the Sabbath well and from the Mishnah, which is a rabbinic source, we, come out, we find that there, there were 39 rules about the Sabbath, prohibitions, things you just could not do. So on the Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples are going through the grain fields and they're plucking grain and eating some of the heads, rubbing them in their hands. So Luke set up the scenario for us. They're plucking grain, that's reaping. One of the 39 rules you can't do. They're rubbing it in their hands. They're threshing. That's another one of the rules you're breaking. You're making it so that you can eat it. You're not allowed to prepare food on the Sabbath. That's three. Three strikes and one, like just this one little thing. They're breaking that many rules. Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Question number one that they ask Jesus. And notice this thing about being lawful, the lawfulness of the Sabbath throughout this, these two scenes. He's allowing them to do something that breaks the rules. So Jesus says, well, let's do a little Bible study here. Remember David? Back in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21, 1 to 7, you'll read this story of David, how he's fleeing, and he goes to the, the tabernacle, and he says, we're starving, we're hungry, what do you got for us to eat? And the priest is like, ah, I got nothing except the uh, old bread of the presents that's sitting there, that's five loaves, I guess you can have that. But if you go back to Leviticus, the bread of the presents was only to be eaten after it was set, okay, it's stale bread, okay? You make it fresh on the day after the Sabbath, it sits in the tabernacle on a special table, in the presence of God, and it just sits there all week. So it's week old bread, not day old. And then on the Sabbath, it's taken off and you get, and, and new stuff is put out. He says, well, we got these old loaves, but the rule is that only the priests are allowed to eat it. And go back to Leviticus, and that's exactly what it says. Nobody else is allowed to eat it. So what's going on here? David's allowed to eat it, and nothing bad comes of it. Jesus, is, Jesus said, hey, David entered the temple. David was the anointed king. The anointed king, the, the, the chosen one of God to leave, lead his people. 
was allowed to eat this. And then Jesus says, he follows this up. In the other Gospels, it goes into a little more of an explanation. Luke leaves that out because he wants to get to this part here in verse 5. Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And the word order actually is a little mixed up here. It doesn't work out so well in, in English, but it is Lord, he is of the Sabbath, the Son of Man. The Lord is first, Kyrios. Master, boss, I rule this. I have authority over it. Remember, this is one of the questions that's been kind of percolating through the last number of, of stories too. Do you have authority to forgive sins? Who has authority on earth to forgive sins but God alone? Jesus here is saying, not only do I have authority to forgive sins, I have authority to redefine your religious understanding of Sabbath. I'm redefining everything. Uh, Daryl Bach in his commentary says, it's no accident this text follows the previous one, 536-39, because this event shows a very different approach to Sabbath. It is new wine. And what Jesus is doing when he talks about this incident from David's life is he is saying human need trumps religious legalism. Human need trumps your religious biases. Human need comes first. And I'm redefining this, Jesus says, in relation to the Sabbath as well. Jesus changes the real question too. He says, who has authority over the Sabbath? Now we go back to Genesis chapter 2. Who establishes the Sabbath? Creator God. Jesus is saying, I am Lord of that. I have authority to define what happens on the Sabbath. This is a bold, bold claim. This is why by the end of this section, they're pretty mad at him. So Sabbath 1. The bottom line here is that Jesus is teaching us that Sabbath sustains us, it doesn't starve us. Sabbath sustains us, it doesn't starve us. Second, second section. Another Sabbath, we don't know how long is between those two, but Luke is pulling these two stories together to give us one, uh, one scene, really, one issue. He's talking about Sabbath and Jesus' lordship over it. There's a man there whose right hand is withered, and Luke's the only one who tells us it's the right hand. The right hand is the hand that, you know, for most of us, that's the dominant hand. That means work, that means uh, prosperity, that, that means this guy was probably dependent on others uh, to work. It's the, it's the arm of strength in, in, in Hebrew thinking. So he's setting this up to be significant. The scribes and Pharisees are watching him. Now, Mark and Luke just use a generic word for look or watch, but Luke chooses a very specific word that has an attitude of spying. They're watching carefully, intently to see if Jesus is going to pull a fast one. The opposition is growing to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. That's their purpose. They have a clear intention this man may have even been brought into the synagogue on purpose for this little thing to say, hey, 
Wonder if we're going to bring this guy in, make it obvious that he's a little disabled, and then see if Jesus will heal him. This could very well be a setup. Because they don't say anything, but they're thinking it. And Jesus, again, here, Luke is, is showing us the divinity of Christ. He knew their thoughts. So he said to the man with the withered hand, Come, stand. Two imperatives. He calls the man, come and stand here. He rose and he stood there. And then Jesus turns to these scribes and these Pharisees. And this is question two. Remember question one, is it lawful? What, why are you allowing your disciples to do what is not, is not lawful on the Sabbath? So Jesus asks them a question now. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm, to save life or destroy it? Well, how would you answer that question? Like, really? Kind of painting them into a corner, isn't he? He's being very deliberate. This is a provocative question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm, to save life or destroy it? After looking around at them all. <laughs> so imagine, you know, I ask you a question, then I just stand here for about 15 minutes and just look everybody in the eye. Awkward moment, right? <laughs> they don't say a thing. Stretch out your hand. These are the only words directed to this man with the withered hand. He's, he's a prop in the whole story. He's not even really a character. Come, stand, stretch out. That's it. Like Jesus says three words to this guy in Greek. And they're all commands. But notice, he rose, he stood, he did it. And his hand was restored. In that moment, God vindicates Jesus' act and his authority over the Sabbath. This healing vindicates the whole of these two stories that Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, here is the proof. I have a biblical precedent for allowing my disciples to provide for their needs and I have a moral obligation to do on the Sabbath that which will set people free. Because Sabbath sustains us, it doesn't starve us, and Sabbath restores us, it doesn't restrict us. Sabbath restores us, it doesn't restrict us. But against this lesson that Jesus is teaching the Pharisees and the scribes, those who want desperately to keep the law and, and live in purity and keep their traditions, Jesus says, you're starving people and you're restricting them. I have come to sustain them and restore them. I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. If we go to Hebrews chapter 4, we'll, we'll read that there was, it, it, there, there was a Sabbath rest that's waiting for God's people. 
And as the author of Hebrews pushes the argument forward, it becomes evident that that rest will be found in none other than the person of Jesus Christ, no longer in a day of the week, but in a person, Jesus. That's where the rest is found. Entering the rest of God, our great high priest is ready to meet all of our needs. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and so as the Sabbath sustains and doesn't starve, so Jesus sustains us and doesn't starve us. Jesus restores us and doesn't restrict us because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he is the ultimate rest that we need. Sabbath sustains us, doesn't starve us. Sabbath restores us, doesn't restrict us. And all of this is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 22 to 23. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is starvation and withered hands. But the gift of God is sustaining and restorative and healing eternal life in Jesus our Lord. In Romans 8, 11, Listen to the life-giving work that God does for us in Christ. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He will give you life now in this flesh, in your mortal body, through the spirit that dwells in you. Because he who raised Christ from the dead is living. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Philippians 4, 4 to 7. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus because Jesus sustains us. He doesn't starve us. Jesus restores us. He doesn't restrict us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the fact that you are Lord of the Sabbath and that this, this clear identifying marker of what it meant to be a good Jew is redefined around your provision and your healing. That it's you providing for the human need of your hungry disciples and the human need of a, a, a man restricted in what he can do, now set free Lord, you say the spirit of the Lord was on you because you were anointed to bring good news to the poor, 
sight for the blind, healing for the captives, release from the oppression, declaring the year of the Lord's favor. Oh Lord, may we see that the, this wonderful thing that you have called us to be a part of as you call us to yourself, as you call us into relationship with you is a place where we are sustained and renewed and restored and healed. That you give life to us now. And Jesus said, this is eternal life that they would know you, Father, and Jesus Christ whom you had sent. Lord, thank you that you are our great physician. Thank you that you are the one who provides and sustains us. And may we come to you, our great high priest, and find grace and help and mercy in our times of need. Because you, Lord Jesus, lived and died and rose again to sustain us. You lived and died and rose again to restore us. May we live into this reality and embrace it more and more and rejoice in what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.